Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to Gigabit Nation, broadband talk radio. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and I want to thank everyone in the audience for taking time to be with us today. Our mission, as always, is to provide information to help public, private, and nonprofit organizations get faster, better broadband everywhere it needs to be. We've recently been talking a lot on this show about uh, FCC Chairman Janikowski's Gigabit City Challenge. That, that's the challenge to industry and, and communities to get at least one citywide gigabit network in every state. Um, and one of the things that this announcement has done is highlighted the fact that there are many important ways that the actions of the F- FCC uh, significantly, significantly impact how broadband rolls out here uh, in, in the U.S., now, it's not certain that uh, Chairman Janikowski is leaving his post, but we see lots of snippets here and there in the media, people speculating, saying that you know he's definitely going to be leaving. We're not sure. But one thing that is starting to gain attention uh, is this uh, question of should uh, President Obama appoint Susan Crawford as head of the FCC if, the, uh, if Mr. Janikowski does indeed leave? And uh, with her new book that's out, uh, Captive Audience, The Telecom Industry and Monopoly in the New Gilded Age, with her columns, uh, national publications, and her speaking engagements, there's uh, no secret that she would be a, a notably different FCC chairman. And the question we have today that we want to explore is, you know, if this were to happen, if she were to be um, appointed how might a uh, Susan Crawford tenure as FCC chief impact broadband? Uh, today's guest is uh, Hunter Newby, who is the CEO of Allied Fiber. And uh, Hunter, welcome, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, Allied Fiber builds, owns, and operates a rather significant uh, amount of broadband infrastructure uh, centered around dark fiber that connects almost every type of broadband technology and infrastructure there is. And because um, Hunter and his company are in touch with a lot and they see a lot of what's going on in the broadband world up close and personal, I I figured, you know, Hunter, you'd be the ideal person to come on board uh, with the show and and talk about uh, what might be uh, the, the end result of having uh, Ms. Crawford as FCC chair, and you've committed, um, commented in public, you know, that a lot of her policy positions are similar to uh, things that Allied Fiber believe to be true. So overall, what do you think the impact of her as chairman would be, you know, in practical terms for for our industry, for the broadband industry? Well, again, thanks for having me on the show, and um, you know. And, and thanks for sort of bringing up this whole topic. Um, as far as commenting on the you know, speculation whether or not the, the current chairman's leaving or not, I don't know any of that. Um, yeah, yeah, but it, you know, we'll let everybody else speculate. Um, as it relates to uh, Susan Crawford, and you know, I know Susan um, and her book, and uh, you know, the, the potential for her to be FCC chair, which I think would be fantastic. Um, you know, I'll say this. What I know about what's going on in this country and what's missing and what's needed um, and how to go about doing it, there's a certain approach that I have, okay, as a as a business owner um, and, and ways to deal with creating physical infrastructure that's neutral, that's carrier neutral, that opens up um, dark fiber infrastructure and neutral co-location and interconnection facilities for the benefit of all network operators um, at the superstructure level, um, which brings great benefit at that sort of layer, if you will, not OSI layer, but layer in terms of the network topology. And uh, Susan is very aware of all of these layers. Um, Her focus, particularly in her new book, um, was more on last mile. Um, as it relates to um, Comcast specifically. And everything's important. It's all relevant and important. Um, But Allied Fiber does not build fiber to the home um, or Metro Fiber or even 
sort of regional fiber that would terminate um, in any buildings other than major data centers and carrier hotels. So I, I want to make, make sure that that distinction is clear and understood and mm-hmm. that you understand where I'm, I'm coming from on my comments. Um, simply put, I think that, that uh, Susan would, would be an outstanding FCC chair because she understands the issues. Um, you know, having a, a working knowledge of how networks actually work is to know what's missing that's needed to make things work properly. And a lot of this revolves around physical layer access. Um, we could speak about, for example, net neutrality, which was uh, a pretty hot topic a little ways back. Um, and we could speak about net neutrality from the perspective of the term net in net neutrality not being related to the Internet. It's actually network neutrality. And mm-hmm. that specifically relates network and the term network specifically relates to physical access. And what needs to be neutral in that sense is the physical asset itself so that any service provider could have use of it. Uh, the control of that physical asset um, at any layer in, in, in the network topology, uh, particularly in the last mile, is where the bottleneck really begins before the user ever even gets to the public Internet. Mm-hmm. Um, Susan understands that. Um, so just approaching it from that perspective, first and foremost, makes uh, the role and the, the person that's sitting in the chair more effective mm-hmm. because you're not lost in all the terminology. You're not lost in, uh, you know, the words and, and the vernacular that people throw around every day like cloud and, you know, Internet versus net um, and things like that and the word fiber, which is practically meaningless unless you define it all the way to the level of saying dark fiber or lit fiber. Mm-hmm. These things these things may be painful uh, to discuss because it adds so many more words to a conversation, um, <laughs> but they are all very, very critical and relevant. Um, and then it gets to the point where those terms uh, are what define legal contracts and what define policy. Mm-hmm. And that's really where Susan's, uh, I believe, her strengths lie in policy. And if you do not understand the way the networks actually work and the terminology and the words used to describe how the network actually works or how it should should work, mm-hmm. then you don't really know how to write policy and write law around it and make it work mm-hmm. properly and function properly. Um, you know, for example, deeming a network to be open could be, you know, interpreted many different ways. An open network. Well, at what layer? And that's the issue. The, 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 the concept of an open network at public layer three in the OSI model, which is its internet protocol and the public internet, is a lot different than policy about an open network at the physical layer or practically speaking, at the dirt layer, at the right-of-way layer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's really where this all begins. And that's the most important step, because if you get that step wrong, then everything else won't work. And, you know, back to your question relative to Susan Crawford and FCC, Susan understands these things, and mm-hmm. that's really very critical. And I'm not saying that uh, Chairman Jenikowski does not, <laughs> but um, the, the, uh, the fact of the matter is I, I don't know Chairman Janikowski, and, and I do know Susan Crawford, so I can speak at least from that perspective somewhat right. intelligently. Well, let's build a bridge here for a second. Let's build a, like, a bridge of understanding. If I am a, uh, broad, a broadband project team leader or member, if I am a uh, community um, activist pushing for broadband, or I am a well. Well, let's start with that, and we'll get we'll move to the to the to the private sector in a second. So, from their perspective, why does this discussion matter? Why does the FCC and policy, and whether or not the chairman gets or understands the issues related to policy, what is the impact in the in the in that part of the trenches, the the community side? Well, because if policy isn't done right, it's not effective. And if you have a chairman that doesn't understand how the networks actually work, then nothing's going to effectively be accomplished. Mm-hmm. And I believe that policy, 
from the government perspective, you know, regulation and whatnot, um, it needs to be very careful not to um, discourage private investment, um, but at the same time needs to make sure that, you know, from the public policy perspective that the needs of the people are being met. And there's a balance between the two, and it's tricky. Um, you know, if you read Susan's book and you saw what, you know, the, the masterful job that Comcast has done amassing franchises um, for, for cable companies and, and putting all that together, it's a very powerful thing, you know, in a network sense today. A lot of control rests within um, Comcast and the network. And then obviously the NBC Universal thing and that went off into the whole concept of content married with the network and whatever. Um, but back in, at the origins of it, no one could really see what all that was going to amount to. Mm-hmm. Um, now you can see it sort of retrospectively, and you can sort of question uh, decisions that were made along the way as, you know, was this right or was this wrong or should it have been done this way or should it have been done that way. Um, it's always sort of better to understand the whole scope before you begin versus after, because then things have already been set. And I, I'll point to one thing that I'm somewhat familiar with um, as it relates to policy and, you know, states in particular. Uh, and that is, you know, recently within the last few years, um, each state, you know, one different than the other, of course, but many have changed um, certain laws, you know, at the state legislature level um, that have either blocked significantly or outright banned municipal broadband, you know, the, the capability for municipalities to actually build their own broadband networks. And I think maybe that's where your question's coming from as a community mm-hmm. activist or someone who's actually looking into this saying, I want to build a broadband network for my community because we are underserved and we need to be served and no one's paying attention to us and we don't meet the financial return on investment IRR profiles of, you know, the incumbents, you know, telephone or cable or some private firm that would invest and we can't wait or our community will shrivel up and and blow away like dust in the wind. We need to do something to keep businesses here that then keep people here and that has very clearly been proven to be if you build a broadband infrastructure then businesses stay and come and grow and people stay and grow and have families and the tax base goes up. And that's really what they're trying to do is protect the tax base. And they've realized that they need to do that through broadband. Okay. Um, Here's the issue. Uh, When you start as a local community or municipality and you start saying we're going to build a broadband network, that irritates the incumbent telephone cable companies and again, in my limited understanding of all this stuff, um, it's largely due to the fact that municipalities can basically have, you know, funding from municipal debt that creates a competitive network to the incumbents who have, you know, a franchise or what have you to certain things. And basically, they just don't want to see competition in their their backyard or whatever territory that they deem is their territory, um, which is fair. Um, from their perspective, if you're thinking of it from the way they're thinking of it. But the municipalities are saying, hey, we're underserved. You know, we don't even have, you know, one megabit or 10 megabits, let alone gigabit. And, you know, back to the whole, you know, the challenge of a gigabit city per state, how do you even accomplish that if the states have essentially outlawed broadband, municipal broadband? (laughs) Um, So basically you're saying that it's got to be built by, um, you know, a telephone or cable company or some other telecom company who will do that based on what model, based on what return on investment. So they have to analyze each city and know if it's going to hit their, you know, return on investment hurdles. Um, That's not necessarily the right way to be looking at it. If you put that whole financial mechanism up against other countries in the world that have already decided that this is the single most important thing that they need to do, like in Australia with the NBN, for example, um, they said, you know, pull out all the stops, we have to build this infrastructure for all the people of the country in order for us to be competitive in the world today and in the future, and this is a direct impact to uh, GDP growth and direct impact to productivity gains, and then therefore everything else, you know, from there, education, healthcare, whatever, 
they're just doing it. And we have sort of an opposite effect here in the U.S. presently where there isn't uh, an easy path for a community grassroots blueprint, if you will, for everyone to follow, um, largely because a lot of states have, um, at the legislature level, blocked this from occurring, you know, due to heavy lobbying by the incumbents and whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, th this is this is a big problem across the whole country. Um, you know, the little guy's looking for a way to, to do it, get it done, and, and before they even get started, you know, they get cut off the knees. So it might be very helpful for, um, you know, from a policy perspective, if the FCC chairman sort of saw all that um, and synthesized all that and said, well, how how do we work a plan that doesn't threaten the you know the for profit network operators uh but serves the needs of the communities that are underserved and I have a simple vision on that, which is that the municipalities are going about it all wrong, saying that they want to build broadband networks, which would be a lit service network that would directly compete with the telephone and cable companies. I think that they should build um dark fiber networks period, and they should leverage what they have possession of, which is what I refer to as the power of the pen, to use their rights of way and their ability to license or grant rights of way to entities or an entity that would build a fiber system, open access neutral fiber system in that municipality that would bring down the barriers to entry of other competing network operators tremendously because the capital expenditure of the physical fiber has been resolved, not to mention the, the myriad issues, administrative issues, licensing, blah, 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 that each individual network operator would have to go through. That's all been done. It was all set up. It's done. The conduits are in. The fibers run. The fibers on the poles and in the street and in the manholes and whatever. And now everyone can use it. Utility companies can use it, CLACs, RLACs, MSOs, everybody, including the incumbents. So don't build a competing network infrastructure against them, which would get them to go to the state legislature and lobby and then ultimately outlaw you. Instead, build a fiber infrastructure using your own money, which is what they want you to do to cut down on their own capex expense. <laughs> and then you can lease fibers to them, but it's not exclusive. You can also okay. lease fibers to others. And that would encourage competition to come to the market. And where there's competition, as I've seen in my whole history of building carrier neutral meet me rooms in major carrier hotels in the US. Um where there's competition there are increased speeds and reduce and reduction in price. And it sort of never ends. The, the the speeds always keep going up and the price per meg always keeps going down. You need to create that dynamic across the whole United States. Mm -hmm. Um and I, I believe that that's the way to go about doing it. I don't think that the incumbents would try and stop a muni that was going to float a bond to build an open access neutral fiber infrastructure. I would point to um, Access Ontario in Ontario County, New York. Right. That's a really good example of that. Um, they, I, I don't have all the numbers in front of me, but they built something like a 300-mile ring around the county, and it was just fiber. And they got the incumbent telephone company and, and et cetera, but they also got utility companies and they got ISPs and enterprises, and that's great. You know, That'll attract data centers. That'll attract businesses. That'll attract the types of tenants that they want, um, you know, <laughs> excuse me, to their county and not go head to head and basically get lobbied and, mm -hmm. you know, well, out, me, out of, me, out of existence. Let me interject a couple things here. Um, uh, one would be a question and the other would be sort of a, I guess a statement, which is based on what you've described, one of the charges to the um, the community stakeholders, activists, even the the the, the smaller um, say providers, local providers, with those kinds of folks, is that they need to better educate themselves about the relationship between policy from the FCC and how it impacts their ability to to move forward, meaning that. You, you can't have a discussion about, well, we think, you know, the president should appoint this person or this type of person to head the FCC when, you know, if you, the, the community or the activist or leader, doesn't fully understand, you know, what their role is and how they influence policy and, and how that influencing of policy comes down to eventually help 
or or hurt the communities. Would that be a fair yeah. assessment? No. <laughs> it's sort of like it's sort of like which came first, the chicken or the egg. Whose fault is it? The person okay. that doesn't know what they don't know. Um, you know, it, it, number one threshold. Everyone needs to learn a whole lot more about everything. Right. Okay. And I I think I think too many people for a long time have all thought that someone else was going to do it for them. Oh, someone else will do it. Someone else will take care of it. I mean, we lived in the United States under the PSTN, which is the greatest telephone system in the world, first century plus. Okay. It wasn't until recently, within the last maybe a little bit over a decade now, we're all getting older, right, Craig? Um, I I, I don't fess up to it, but yeah. Yeah, the public internet's come along and things have changed and, you know, DARPA created it and now, you know, internet protocols deployed sort of more broadly and fast and widely and faster in other countries, not in the United States, where it came from. Um, And everyone kind of knows that and talks about that and it's all very shocking and whatnot. But the truth of the matter is that, um, you know, people have to take ownership and responsibility for figuring out learning what they need to know that they don't know. And I think if you're trying to figure out broadband, you better know what it means and you better know how networks actually work and down to the physical layer before you start doing what you just suggested, which is, well, I think this person would be a good chairman or this person. How do you know? How are you even qualified to say what would be good or not good if you don't actually know what the real issues are? Like you don't know what net neutrality really means. You think it's about regulating the public Internet. It's about access to the public Internet. Whoever controls the access to it makes the rules and sets the rate of freight. And it's things like that. Um, And it's difficult. I mean, this is a big topic. And unless you've been in the industry almost since its inception, it's difficult to learn. I mean, there aren't a whole lot of college courses on this stuff. Mm -hmm. The first generation of people that actually built this stuff are just now in sort of in their, you know, next generation, if you will, um, particularly from a commercial network perspective. Um, and it's it's just hard to put the onus on anybody to say you need to know more before you, you know, can do this. I think you could put that onus on everybody. I think that I think that the the policy people need to understand more about how networks actually truly function in addition to the, you know, municipal community activist people. Everybody mm-hmm. does. Um, and then Real work can be done and real problems can be solved. You see, our biggest issue in the United States, I think, and there are several, but I think the biggest issue that we have is our geography. We're a very large country with a big population, but it's widely dispersed. And we're not a small, you know, Western European or certain, you know, Asian countries that are smaller that we're always compared to, you know, Japan or South Korea or what have you. Of course, they have better broadband infrastructure than we do. They're microscopic geography-wise, and, and by the way, population density is heavily in the favor of a country like Japan or South Korea. There are very, a lot of people packed into a small area, so you know you can get a return on investment. Look at Hong Kong, a perfect example. You know, City City Telecom in Hong Kong, they have the fastest speeds and the lowest price, you know, per household in the world. And that's why they're number one. But what's the definition of a household in Hong Kong versus here in the U.S.? What's the definition of a home? In Hong Kong, it's an apartment in a 90-story tower. In in the U.S., a home, on average, is something that you'd think of sort of, you know, in Connecticut or something, you know, with a decent piece of land and, you know, kind of far from the road. And it's a lot more expensive to build fiber to places like that. And it's simple things like that that need to be understood and put into context. You know, even if a municipality builds a fiber network in its own geography how does it then connect that back to the major internet peering points that exist today in the u.s they aren't going to be able to fund the construction of fiber from their town all the way to the next you know main peering point if it's beyond their their city limits or whatever mm-hmm. and that's kind of what that's kind of what allied fiber obviously focuses on building a superstructure around the u.s that has uh you know it's obviously long haul in nature but has a metro design with lots of splice points you know, every 3,000 feet, and neutral colo facilities every 60 miles to house equipment of local networks that build into us. We don't build off the right of way. And that is the unifier, you know. That is the the extension cord, the bridge for all of the major cities, but all of the smaller markets in between, including towers, including data centers and hospitals and, and all that. 
Um, that's a physical layer flat, you know, Lego pad, and everybody gets to plug their Legos in wherever they want. It, that's what makes a very large geography functional, the, because the disparity, you know, the, the, the sheer number of miles, it just adds to the cost and it adds to the complexity and it adds to the burden that any mm-hmm. network operator has to carry. And of course, the further they have to go with it, you know, if they have a if they have a lit service provider model, the you know the more protectionist they become in all their territories because they need to get their return on their investment. They don't want to line share. They don't want to open up that fiber to anybody else. How else are they going to get their return? They need to pull revenue and margin from every single product set that they can. Um, I get all that, but that's not what the municipalities want. So there's a conflict there. Um, and again, understanding these things, putting them in the proper context. And, and looking at it holistically from the entire United States is really where each and every municipality needs to come at this from, not just their town, but mm-hmm. what does it look like? What does the whole country look like? You know, we all have similar problems in different places, but, you know, even if I'm successful here, how do I get out of here? Um, and, you know, that's the that's the ultimate uh, obstacle, I think. Right. And people need to talk about that. At the risk of you know saying the same thing twice, I mean I understand that you know what you're saying as far as people need to uh, understand the technology, they need to understand things, you know they need to know what they don't know. Um, as part of that, are we in danger of of screwing up the the policy discussions and the resulting actions laws, et cetera, because we we get can hung up on words. And yep. you know, case in point, you know, the 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 Washington Post started the week with an article that says, you know, the FCC is going to bring free Wi-Fi to everyone. And like Lemmings, all of a sudden, the entire press world seemed to be picking up on that and saying, oh, good lord, it's, the day has come. Uh, we're going to get free Wi-Fi everywhere. Then what is today? Wednesday. So two days later, the Post uh, comes up with another story. That that tries to put that into perspective. Number one, we were they were you know they were talking about older policy discussions to begin with, but in her in 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 her article rewrite, uh, she continues to use the word Wi-Fi, and but that's not really what we were talking about. But because she says Wi-Fi, everyone defaults to certain assumptions. Do we have a uh, a ling a a word issue, a linguistics issue? And by the way, we have a call coming in. Let me pick up the call and then hold the thought on that question. Hello, this is Gabe with Nation. Do we have a caller on the line? Uh, yes, this is Michael Elling. Hi, Hunter. Hi, Craig. Mike, hey, how are you? <laughs> Good. How are you? Great. Um, I, you know, Hunter, I, I broadly agree with a lot of what you say, um, and it strikes me that there's got to be a formula or framework that needs to be developed that takes your layer one horizontal view, which you're clearly doing in the WAN with Allied Fiber, and which you clearly point to for the municipal or regional opportunity um, with respect to dark fiber. Um, But I think it goes beyond that. I think you have to also take that view and say, how do I apply and the second and third, you know, all the way up to the application layers. Um, And quite frankly, most people, you know, once you get above layer one, they won't know what you're talking about. So I agree with you there's an educational issue here, but have you seen a framework? Have you seen an approach that, the supply side guys, be it academia, regulators, the capital markets, and the trade people will buy into as well as the demand side, which is, you know, the end users, the technology ecosystem, the corporate customers. I mean, this is not an easy thing to do. And I, can can Susan do it? Can somebody do it? Um, okay. I understand what you're saying, but the way I view it is we can't even have that discussion until we solve the physical layer discussion. We can't start sorting out standards at any layer in the stack higher than one until we sorted out one. 
There needs to be a blueprint. There needs to be a framework. It needs to start with the superstructure as the epicenter. And from that point, the ripples, the, you know, the, the waves in the pond when you throw the rock, the ripples away, that's the next county and the next county and the next county. And everybody knows, based on looking at the map, where they are in relation to the center line. And then they have to sort out how they're going to get to it. And it might be, here's the plan, here's the center line, here's the crosshairs, where are you on this map, and then start figuring out rights of way, how you're going to do the build to get to your neighboring county, that guy's doing the build to get to me, et cetera, et cetera. Once that's all sorted, and we all know where we are, right? You can't see the, the forest for the trees, right? Now all of a sudden we can see it. Then you start the path of the physical construction. And everybody's working like ants in the colony on a mission. We know what we're doing. Once that's laid in place, then you can begin to open up and have conversations about layer two and where exchange points are going to be set up, literally, you know, for, for Ethernet, for VLANs, um, and now for SDN, which SDN then leads into what you just described as application layer policy discussions about how things are actually going to interconnect. And it's interesting that you bring it up because, um, you know, in another hat that I wear and helping a lot of people around the country, I just launched the new Internet Exchange in Atlanta um, at Colo ATL at 55 Marietta Street called the SNAP, the Southeast Network Access Point. And it was launched with academic anchor members, Georgia Tech, as well as U.S. Ignite and the Genie Project, and then a couple other schools, um, PeachNet um, is part of it as well. And that's just to start. And I have a really good working relationship with Georgia Tech and the CTO there, Ron Hutchins, great guy. And that is exactly what we're talking about. This is an SDN open flow peering exchange. So that hasn't really been done before. Right, We've got the old school V4, V6, VLAN type, but now we're talking SDN, software-defined networking, how the networks actually talk to each other and provision. And I'm still talking strictly about network-related things, and you're talking about going even beyond that to capital markets and everything else. It all needs to be organized. And there's only so many things we can sort of reach for before we have a solid foundation that we're standing on. And, again, I get back to this is a large country. We shouldn't treat the country as, you know, regions or, you know, one city versus another city because that will only be stealing from some other place. Um, we should look at it holistically. We should come up with a plan for the whole nation physically and then layer two and then three and then right on up the stack. But you can't get to layer two or three if you don't deal with layer one first. And I don't know how long it's going to take, okay, because we've been working on it already for years. And, we're getting a lot of attention, and obviously we have a lot of people behind us, and the the markets responded, you know, tremendously well. You know, but we're dealing with our own challenges of, you know, the capital markets and figuring out how to finance the, the build of something that's in desperate, desperate need from every network operator, including the incumbents. They need fiber, too. They need new fiber. Their fiber is 20 years old in many cases, and they need fiber that has access points to build laterals to get to towers, to provide LTE backhaul, and things like that. If you don't have that, you can't get to the other stuff. Um, but I hear what you're saying, and all I can tell you is that it's an evolution and that it's being worked on. And I think that a lot of people that work on the higher layer of things and try and get that sorted out are ultimately left disappointed when they then realize after toiling for so long that the infrastructure that they need to rely on to make it all work isn't there. Great. Michael, thank you for calling in. I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Keep in touch. So um, I want to get back to your question, Craig, about the okay. terminology. You are absolutely 100% correct. I could give you so many examples, but I'll keep it short. I've read in the major newspapers in this country, and this is going back a few years, but this is where, from my perspective, it all started, where there would be an article, okay, about voice over IP, and it would say, you know, as an acronym, VOIP, and then in parentheses, voice over the Internet. And then the rest of the article would go on. And it was about Vonage or it was about, you know, whatever. That is wrong. VOIP is not voice over the Internet. 
VOIP is voice over Internet protocol. Internet protocol and the Internet are not the same. They are two totally different things. And I know that's hard for people to understand and it sounds like semantics, but boy, is that not the most important thing to understand. Internet protocol is just a protocol. The Internet is a collection of disparate networks that use Internet protocol and connect to each other to create this conglomerate global network. Internet protocol is just a protocol. What's the distinction? Running voice over Internet protocol on a private, let's say, corporate wide area network, those voice calls never touch the public Internet. And I could give you many examples where carriers run IP, voice over IP, over a private core transport network that never hits a router that's on the public Internet. Why is it important to understand the distinction? Because if anything that says IP then all of a sudden gets regulated because the Internet is now being regulated, now all of a sudden private networks are being regulated. Like whatever data you're sending over a private link between one node and another node in your own private network now has some language somewhere that says that that's being regulated, like that those phone calls are going to be regulated or taxed. They're not even phone calls. They're SIP sessions. It's no different than email going from one place to another. And this is the problem where we have legacy terminology and policy wrapped around voice, which was tied to the PSTN, which is a service, heavily regulated, heavily taxed, heavily everything, that's then converted to IP. And there's two domains. There's the private IP world, and then there's the public Internet. But if you don't understand the distinction between the two when you're writing policy, it's, it's, it's a disaster. And it is so critically important that the major publications in this country and the rest of the world that are trusted and relied upon as credible and whatever words they say are taken as gospel, it needs to be right. And if the people that are reading it are reading it to learn and they're reading wrong, they're learning wrong. They don't know that what they just read isn't accurate. And then if you try to take the time to explain it, everyone just kind of, you know, yawns and their eyes roll and they start snoring and they're like, oh, this guy's boring. Jesus, I can't listen to this stuff. And it's like, no, this is really important. This is like what I was saying before about net neutrality. It's not Internet neutrality. And the net neutrality crowd all of a sudden glommed on to, you know, regulating who can see what websites on the Internet. What does that have to do with net neutrality? They missed the whole point. They just think that every time you say net, it means Internet. And in this case, it meant network, and that meant something different. And everybody just you know, ran off in different directions. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people where people use acronyms and, and words that are from the industry, whether it's traditional telecom or Internet or what have you. Everyone talks and everyone nods and everyone smiles. And they all walk away, and they all think they heard the same thing. They all have completely different understandings of what was said. It's the ultimate blind man and the elephant. I don't know how uh, – it's almost like before everyone comes in the room, you want to have them, like, take a quiz. And if they fail the quiz, they're not allowed in the room until they go <laughs> learn it, and then they can come back in. Because this is the 102 course, and you haven't passed 101 yet. So you need to go back out in the hall and read this book and then take the quiz again, and then you can come in. It's sad, and we laugh, but it's true. And – I've met so many people that talk a bunch of gibberish, and it's like, you don't know what you're talking about, do you? But they think they do, and then they make decisions. Yes. We're in a technological age. Everything relies on networks today. It isn't like what it used to be when we were farming communities or even industrial, and people were just, you know, doing sort of mechanized robotic work and didn't need to know how the whole thing worked. You just, you know, stamped this thing over here, and that was it. Now, everybody carries around mobile devices, multiple mobile devices. People are their own tech support. I mean, you know, kids know how to fix things and fix Wi-Fi routers and use FaceTime. I mean, that's stuff that scientists didn't know how to do 30, 40 years ago. And it's part of our everyday life. I can't tell you how many people, young people that I know, that think that wireless does away with fiber. <laughs> they don't even oh, know how wireless, they don't know how a cell phone works. So, I don't know. So I could go on forever on that, but it's very important. To answer your question, it's critical. It's, it's wrong every day, and we're, we, we, I don't know how we sort of centralize that and, and make sure that everybody sort of has the aptitude. And, and like I said before, you need to be qualified to have an opinion and, and, and say something and, 
you know, make policy. I mean, definitely have to be qualified. But how do we know, you know, whether or not that person is or who's the who is the person or group that's supposed to write the test to qualify the people that are making the decisions? You know, who is it? Is it the FCC? Is it Telcordia? Is it, you know, I don't know. <laughs> what Interesting. What body? The um, there's a there's a question that came up. Actually, there's a couple of them coming up in the in the chat room. I'm going to try to get to a couple of them, but they 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 lead into this discussion. Actually, um, one earlier on is that um, in the national broadband plan, there's a call for um, Congress to eliminate the barriers that are up in place that that prevent lo- localities from coming up with their own broadband solutions. But my bigger question is. Is the FCC position a good position for wrestling with Congress, not only on this but on other issues? Is the FCC position a good position? There, in other words, you know, I had uh, FCC Commissioner Clyburn on the show once. We got we started talking about policy. She brought up the the fact that in, in one particular point of policy we were discussing. That Congress had mandated, you know, X, Y, and Z, you know, in terms of how the money that they have in their fund is supposed to be dispersed. So, in mm-hmm. essence, the FCC is structured by uh, congressional mandate in some issues mm-hmm. in terms of how they can respond. So, mm-hmm. my question would be, you know, is the FCC chair, you know, in a position where they can actually go into Congress and wrestle with them to try to change laws? Or, you know, do they have that kind mm-hmm. of clout? That kind of I, boy, that's I don't know. <laughs> that's that's way <laughs> beyond my my pay grade, man. Um, I I operate in the business world, and I have ideas, and I figure out how to do it, and I just go do it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, policy in Washington D.C. inside the Beltway, and who gets to tell who what to do, and who has power. I mean, that's what goes on down there every day. And if you could figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> You're you're, the universe. you're you're yeah you're yeah you're master of the universe that, that that changes every day it's always a power struggle down there I will say this though um, what you just said actually uh, connects to something else that I'm I'm familiar with and I'm becoming more familiar with it's called FirstNet oh yeah and right. yeah it's my new favorite thing FirstNet um, so Congress. Uh, February 2012, Middle Class Tax Relief Act is signed. Amongst many other things that are in the act, um, CIA pension increases and things like that, um, there's the creation of uh, FirstNet, which is this first responder network. And, uh, I mean, this is, this is under the cover of broad daylight, this is all going on. Um, FirstNet got the entire D block of the 700 megahertz spectrum free and clear, portions of which were granted through the VTOP to other entities that were supposed to build public safety wireless networks, and then that, that was taken away from them, including the money that they got to build it. So that the broadband stimulus, obviously, you know, unfortunately, I think it had good intentions and just was not executed at all well. And FirstNet's a really good example of that. So FirstNet's this homogenous plan for the United States for a nationwide broadband wireless network. A lot of people don't even know anything about this, Craig. And I'm talking about people that I know in my world, in my industry, and I know a few people, like thousands. And I bring this up at every conference I speak at, and I've had in all the past year of bringing this up, two people, when I said, has anyone heard first net, two people raised their hand, and they were both Washington, D.C. telecom lawyers. Nobody knows what it is. And here it is, under the cover of broad daylight, with the D-Block, with $7 billion. Um, they didn't even have a board, a management team, or a plan when it was created. The board was created in August. They're now out trying to hire a GM. They've had a few board meetings. I went to one in December in D.C., December 11th, at the Herbert Hoover Auditorium. Um, fascinating stuff. So Congress creates what is deemed by uh, the chairman of FirstNet, whose name is Sam Jin, um, who was a former AT&T guy, very capable guy, very smart guy. Um, He's the chairman. And FirstNet, in his own words, 
will become one of the largest telecom companies in the United States. It is the largest telecom infrastructure project in the history of the country. Oh, boy. It will, it will be a multi-billion dollar enterprise, and it will employ thousands of people. These are these are the words that that the you know chairman said, um, and uh, the secretary of FirstNet, um, he called FirstNet a reverse startup. We have money, we have a board, but we don't have a management team, and basically <laughs> we don't have a plan. And I find this I find this so strange and ironic and bizarre. Here we are with everybody struggling to figure this stuff out. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, comes the perfect plan. They're going to build a broadband wireless network that covers every square meter of the United States. These are, these are Chairman Jin's words. How come nobody knows about this, Craig? How come this isn't on the news every single day? Why doesn't this get any media attention, like the amount of media attention that the broadband stimulus got? Why? Seven billion to one entity. 7.2 billion was spread across what 2,200 applicants for the B top and the and the yeah the, in, under the era, um, 7.2 for 2,200 applicants, but 7 billion goes to one entity. So now you're asking about the FCC. What's interesting about FirstNet, as far as I can tell, is that it is an independent authority within the NTIA. But I don't believe that the FCC has any oversight of it. So there, I think, in lies the answer to your question. What is it? It's an independent entity that has all this money and the D-block, preemptive public safety rights nationwide. Preemptive public safety rights. What does that mean? You're familiar with what NIMBY stands for? Not in my backyard? I have, yes. Uh-huh. Okay, so first that's getting money to go build towers and fiber to towers and put antennas on towers in the 700 megahertz spectrum. And NIMBY rules don't apply to them. They can build towers wherever they want because it's under the umbrella of public safety, federal public safety, mind you. This comes right out of the 9-11 commission and the whole thing. Matter of fact, one of the board members is an NYPD guy. Um, well, it was, you know, it was signed, right? The act was signed. Nobody was going to vote against, you know, public safety, right? I mean, what what congressman could go back to his constituents and say, "I voted against public safety," mm-hmm. so it, it was it was all, you know, green light. If you read what they're doing, actually, with these funds and who they're allowed to enter into agreements with, which is basically anybody, and they can sell lit services, you know, to anyone. They could sell fiber. They can lease tower space. They could basically sell any asset that they create. And they're supposed to make money from this profit and reinvest the profit back into building more infrastructure. So it's like a self-propelled national broadband network. And then there's rules for each state to engage with FirstNet to deploy the FirstNet model in that state. Maybe this is the way that they plan on solving all these municipal broadband issues, but it's going to be controlled as one U.S. standard, and they're writing the standard right now. So actually what Michael brought up was a good point, was a lot of the things that the FirstNet board discussed in December. And as a matter of fact, they just had another board meeting in Boulder, Colorado, I think a couple days ago. Um, This is really interesting stuff. I don't know how I'm supposed to feel about this, to be honest with you. I mean, is it going to solve all of our problems? If it was so great, why doesn't more why don't more people know about it? Um, but then, how does this impact independent network operators that are, you know, obviously for profit but not funded directly by the government? They, the government, seven billion dollars for FirstNet with no pro forma, no IRR, no debt, no interest payments. No, what's their cost of capital? Uh, nothing. We, you know, we print it. Um, you know, and maybe I'm being a little sarcastic, but you know what I mean. There's a lot of companies out there that are trying to build a business and get a return on investment and whatnot, and they have, you know, they have cost of capital, they have requirements. And this entity didn't seem to have any that I could see. Um, now, does does this mean that the country doesn't need 
broadband everywhere? No. Matter of fact, I think the creation of FirstNet does one thing very clearly. It proves that there's a huge problem in the U.S. with a lack of broadband, or else FirstNet would not have needed to be created. And they say public safety, and I say, okay, it's still a national broadband wireless slash broadband network. Um, if we had it, first that wouldn't be necessary. So we don't have it. And that leads to a bigger sort of issue, which is that we do not have nationwide 4G LTE at all. There are a lot of commercials on television that tell us we do, but we don't. It's a marketing uh, thing. It's, it's fully right. on a marketing deal, really. Yeah, but, but, but doesn't everybody sign up for a 4G plan and pay a flat rate every month for 4G? And how much time during the month do you actually get 4G service versus how much time do you get knocked down to 3G or Edge or GSM or GPRS or UMA or whatever, frequency hopping? People don't get 4G all month, but they pay for it all month. And the reason why they don't get it is because it doesn't exist. And one of the reasons why it doesn't exist isn't just about spectrum and spectral efficiency. It's the lack of fiber to the tower that's needed for backhaul for LTE. Well, but who's going to pay the who's going to pay to build it all out? Right. But well, I think the answer is first, I think the answer is FirstNet saying we're going to build it all out and turn around and lease capacity, whether it's you know the spectrum or the you know tower space or lit fiber you know all the above. So the mobile operators basically get their whole network built out on the you know U.S. dime. And the mobile operators don't have to deal with every town and all the NIMBY issues that go along with that and getting licenses and permits and everything else, which is what the holdup is. You know, shareholders, dividends, and local town rules. Those have been addressed from as far as I could see and have been eliminated with the creation of FirstNet. Right. And I, you know, I'm trying to learn more about it, and I would really enjoy speaking to somebody on the inside over there that would say, you know, yes, that's right, or no, that's not, or it's partially right, and you know, here's where you're right, and this is where you're wrong, and we didn't really mean it like that, or whatever. But everything that I can figure out is what I just told you. Right. And maybe that's a good thing for some people, and maybe that's a, not a good thing for other people, and you know, time will tell. But it ties into what Michael said, and it ties into this sort of larger debate about FCC versus Congress and who's driving the bus and what's the gaping hole and how's it being addressed. Right. And, uh, you know, and to put a punctuation on the comment earlier, you know, about our terminology, you know, we are in this mindset that, oh, yeah, we're paying every month for 4G and we're not getting it. Most people don't know what it is, so they couldn't even tell if they were getting it or not. But they're still paying this money, and you still have policies and arguments being made. You know, well, we need to listen to these guys on you know the telecom side because they brought us 4G and they made all these great investments. Yet no one knows what it is that supposedly they've made the investments in. So you can't check them. You can't fact check them. You can't sanity check them. You know, we yep. we just don't have the knowledge. We're not. You know, someone needs to devise that test you're describing. Someone needs to create that. You know, before you can make a statement in public about this, you need to have passed 101. And I think that when it comes to an issue of the FCC and Congress, you know, people often complain that within the FCC, there are not enough technologists that run things, that make key decisions. And within Congress, there's clearly not a people, enough people to have enough technology knowledge because some of these guys are probably still printing out their emails before they read them. So, <laughs> you know... <laughs> <laughs> you're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. Well, that's funny. Um, I just have to ultimately say that we need to sort of manage what we expect this FCC person to do. You know, we're very critical of Jenikowski. We're very positive in our comments about, uh, you know, Susan Crawford. And I, you know, I'm very positive in my feelings about, you know, what she says and what she writes. Um, but, you know, we, we have certain expectations sometimes that can get out of hand. And and we get these people in position, and we get all disgruntled and say, well, you know, they're screwing up. Well, maybe you, the person who's complaining, don't know enough to really say that they're 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 screwing up. You know, so um, it's it's complicated. 
It and I think that's that that's the underlying it's complicated technically and it's also complicated politically. Right. Politics politics is not governed by the laws of physics. Okay. <laughs> up is not always up and down is not always down and gravity is not always nine point eight meters per second squared. How do you function in that world where the rules change dynamically? It's mm-hmm. called politics. And um I I hear everything that you're saying, and you're right, and then it's almost like sarcasm, and we laugh and say, well, it is what it is, and that's it. I will say this to that point. Um, whoever came up with FirstNet was very smart, and I don't think it was somebody in the government that came <laughs> up with it. And I'm not knocking people in the government, but it's all the things that you just said. It, you've got to come from the industry and actually understand all this stuff and how it works and what the real problems are to come up with something like that. And to me, it was kind of like the government saying to the mobile guys, hey, where is the nationwide 4G LTE network that you guys are putting on TV promising us? And they came back and said, hey, we can't build it. And they said, well, why not? It's because we have shareholders and we have to pay dividends. And every time we turn around, some other little town says, not in my backyard. How are we going to build these towers and put these antennas up if we can't even move? And they were like, hmm, okay, well, what should we do? And they said, tell you what, here's a plan. (laughs) Put your name on it and go build it. And then guess what? We'll become really big customers of it. Like, huh, you think that'll work? I said, yeah, (laughs) just do this. Oh, okay. And then we'll have nationwide broadband wireless? Yes. All right. That's what we'll do. Interesting. So, I I mean, that's how I see it. I Mm -hmm. mean, you know, tell me I'm wrong. Tell me somebody who's lived inside the government their whole life came up with that plan. (laughs) It's the technological concepts of the network. There's a point there. I don't know. Again, I'm I'm not being critical. You politics and government and knowing how to navigate that is as tricky as understanding everything about networks and knowing how to navigate that, right? Mm -hmm. There's Mm -hmm. just different levels of complexity. Um, Same kind of issues, though. Like, do I do this or do I do that? You know, put me in that circumstance. If I'm outside of my element, I wouldn't know, just the same as somebody in my world wouldn't know how to make a decision left or right when confronted with something. So it's complicated. Mm -hmm. And I think everybody here is just trying to figure out what's the best way forward you know, taking all these things into consideration. And, of course, the biggest thing from my perspective to be concerned about is what's the best thing for the country? Because it's where we all live, and we're planning to live here going forward, and we need these things. So, you know, I, I make reference to the um, the Highway Act of 1956, you know, the Interstate Highway Act of, that Eisenhower Highway System was built based on. And, um, I mean, I can tell you right now, while everybody's whizzing down I-95, you know, from New York to Florida, nobody thinks about, knows, or remembers any of the people that were handed their eminent domain papers and told to get out of their house because the highway was coming through. And those people lived there probably on family homes and farms and stuff for a century. But guess what? You're in the way of progress, and you're being moved. Goodbye. And now we have this highway system that changed the country and made it what it is today. If we didn't do that, we would still be some backwater country road to cover the size of this country, and we wouldn't have, you know, commerce at the level that we have it today with trucking and everything else and ports and airports and seaports, railroads, intermodal yards, all that kind of stuff. It happened, um, and at some point you need to make these decisions, and there's sacrifices that have to be made, and it's tough. And there's some people that are going to be, quote, unquote, you know, losers or hurt by this in some way. And you want to try and mitigate that as much as possible, but at some point it has to be built. And, you know, I think that what happened with Eisenhower, you know, was like, look, everybody can't have a say. We need to do this at the federal level and just, like, by decree, executive order, it's an act, it's signed, it's funded, it gets built. And now we have a highway system. Nobody looks back on that and thinks about what it was before and what it took to make it happen. We all just live with the benefits of its creation 
in existence mm -hmm. today. We're going to have to, it's same, have to same cut thing. you right there. Uh, this has been an excellent discussion. I definitely see bringing you back on the show again to talk some more about you know policy, but also about what your company does. But but thank you very, very much for take, taking the time to, to speak with us, Hunter. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Um, thank you to our audience. Tomorrow we're going to be talking about economic development fundraising. So I think everybody who's worried about money and broadband, check in tomorrow. Have a great day, folks. We'll talk again soon.